0: From Trinity College, this is Hidden Literacies. Hello and welcome to Hidden Literacies, the podcast. On this show, we'll hear from contributors to the Hidden Literacies anthology on the sources they've selected, how they became hidden, the lessons we can learn from them, and what they reveal about the stakes of each contributor's scholarship. My name is Mary Mahoney, and I'm the Digital Scholarship Coordinator at Trinity College. On this episode, it's my privilege to bring you a conversation with contributor Philip Round. Professor Round contributed a Kickapoo prayer stick and transcription to Hidden Literacies that offers significance for its time and our own. To begin, I've asked Phil to introduce himself and offer a description of the items he's contributed.
1: Um, My name is Philip Brown, and I'm uh, at the University of Iowa in Iowa City. And uh, I'm providing some uh, two pieces of uh, text for the anthology called Hidden Literacies. One of them is a piece of wood Carved in a special way so that Kickapoo parishioners in a church in the 1830s could follow along with a prayer cycle that their pastor had created for them. He also was Kickapoo. And then the other document is an alphabetic transcription of that uh, wooden text that was made uh, two generations later by Kickapoo. Uh, congregation members who uh, had gone to uh, English language school and learned how to write their language in an alphabetic form.
0: In his commentary, Phil identified a question common to all the pieces in Hidden Literacies. Quote, why have some communities constructed alternate textualities that demanded unique literacy practices, sometimes in direct competition with those promoted by the U.S. common school system and Anglo-American middle-class sociability? End quote. In part, he suggests, The pastor who created the Kickapoo prayer stick and his followers used the prayer sticks and later translations as part of larger efforts to rebel against any attempts to assimilate with American culture. As my conversation with Phil and his writing on these pieces bears out, this desire to create and maintain an autonomous identity apart from American culture drove both the original creation of these texts and more recent attempts to archive and translate them. I asked Phil how he became aware of these objects.
1: So the first item, the wooden uh, stick, is called a prayer stick in the anthropological literature. And I found it mentioned and photographed in a bulletin of the Bureau of American Ethnology, probably from the 1930 or something. And it, like so much of what I work with it, it, in the field of, of Native American It was treated in those days as kind of a curiosity, and it was uh, maybe sort of treated in a rather too offhand way, in my view. So I I tracked it down because I wanted to look at at it closer to see what it was. And luckily, the uh, Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History had a a beautiful photograph of, of a lot of material culture objects, and it's in their collection.
0: Part of what Phil set out to do was not only understand these objects and their importance to the Kickapoo, for whom they were sacred religious texts, but to put them in context and understand their meanings, powers, and uses.
1: And then I put together with the material object all kinds of historical texts, people who witnessed the um uh, Chickapoo congregation using these sticks in their prayers on Sunday and also the famous uh, Native American portraitist uh, he he himself wasn't Native but he painted a lot of Native portraits, George Catlin in the 1830s and again these paintings hang on the walls of museums around the country but nobody had put all of these things together because Catlin painted members of this congregation and they all demanded that he paint them with their prayer sticks in their hands, and in in the manner of prayer, as he wrote it in his notes on these paintings. So my job wasn't to really discover something brand new, except it kind of had been forgotten. My job was to kind of bring this stick and this congregation back into the conversation about what 19th century America literacy and religious activities were like for remove Native peoples of the Kickapoo Nation, which had to be removed by the federal government from Indiana
0: to Kansas. So let's back up and use some of Phil's commentary to understand the context of Kickapoo prayer sticks, their translation, and their importance. As Phil writes in Hidden Literacies, Kennecook, called the Kickapoo Prophet, was born in 1790 in Indiana. Locals described him as an abusive alcoholic in his youth who wandered away from the village sometime during the War of 1812. Around this time, divine intervention changed his life and sparked his ministry. As Phil describes, quote, the Great Spirit reached out to him in his misery and gave him a piece of his heart, which he was to share with his fellow Kickapoos, to instruct them in the ways of peace and love, end quote. Kennecook returned to his village and took on a leadership role, inspiring members with his message, which he inscribed on prayer sticks. As Phil describes in his commentary, quote, Kennecook fashioned a symbolic representation of the creator's message into narrow 10-inch walnut boards he inscribed with a private symbol system. These were arranged into a five-character group toward the bottom of the stick, followed by an 11-character cluster near the top. The apex of the staff was often carved into a diamond shape, reminiscent of the point of a crown. The rectangular head of these staffs also featured an escutcheon whose left side depicted a building with a similar diamond on its roof, and whose right side featured what early ethnographers thought were a row of corn stalks. End quote. Prayer sticks played an important role in the church Kenneka created. Every member was required to have a prayer stick, and they were so highly valued that they were buried with members upon death. A contemporary witness described the role prayer sticks played in services, "...congregational worship is performed daily and lasts from one to three hours. It consists of a kind of prayer, expressed in broken sentences, often repeated in a monotonous sing-song tone, equaling about two measures of a common psalm tune. All in unison engage in this, and in order to preserve harmony in words, each holds in his or her hand a small board." upon which is engraved arbitrary characters, which they follow up with the finger until the prayer is completed. To outsiders, this service may have resembled a Christian service, with a prayer stick resembling the ritual of a rosary, for example. Not so. This was no embrace of Western religion or American missionary work. Visiting the Kickapoo Mission near Leavenworth, Kansas, in Christmas of 1840, Jesuit missionary Nicola Point said of a service he attended, quote, The Indians listened open mouth to a charlatan, end quote. As Phil writes in his commentary, the prayer sticks and later translations of these texts represent the ways the Kickapoo held themselves apart and resisted assimilation. Descriptions he'd found of their services and the use of prayer sticks, quote, shows that the wooden staffs functioned as texts. The sticks helped the congregation preserve harmony, that is, to constitute themselves as a unified community, whose shared oral performances confirm their membership. By using their fingers to trace up the prayer stick toward its diamond-shaped head, Phil writes, the parishioners enacted an embodied material practice by which reading became a devotional activity. Further evidence of the ceremonies surrounding the use of prayer sticks suggests that the liturgy they encoded served as a new kind of anti-assimilationist ideology that helped to voice Kickapoo sovereignty in the face of the Removal Act. When the Black Hawk War of 1832 broke out, the community realized that Americans would not tolerate their proximity for much longer and removed to the west bank of the Missouri River, a few miles north of Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. There, they established a thriving community made up of Kennecook and his 400 followers. An American visiting the community remarked on the ways it was, quote, shut out from the world. But as Phil Round reminds us in his commentary, the Kickapoo had, quote, sheltered in that location precisely in order to regroup as a distinctly indigenous society, resisting missionizing and land grabbing at every turn. This was the era of removal. In Supreme Court Justice John McLean's concurring opinion in Worcester v. Georgia, a case that ruled on, among other things, the constitutionality of removal, The justice expressed concern about, quote, how the words of the treaty were understood by an unlettered people. As Phil notes, by creating this prayer stick and its non-alphabetic script, Kennecook seems to have presented his community with a viable alternative to the unlettered image that the lawmakers in Washington forced onto the native peoples of the U.S. This Kickapoo community did not speak English, It resisted the influence of alcohol and formed a self-sustaining economy, not reliant on American or missionary culture. The faith community Kennecook created lasted another 75 years. Its longevity relied in part on an alphabetic translation of the prayer sticks created sometime in the 1850s by Kennecook's successor, who used it to create a manuscript codex. The typed manuscript that appears in the Hidden Literacies anthology was copied from the manuscript in 1906. Amateur ethnographer Milo Custer collected the prayer stick and alphabetic text when he visited the community in 1906. He was a member of an antiquarian club who sought out ceremonial mounds and other elements of America's indigenous past in order to preserve them. Having heard about the Kennecook Church, he traveled to the Kickapoo Nation, where he befriended the pastor. The pastor gifted him a prayer stick in friendship and allowed him to copy the manuscript liturgy. Custer was only a few pages into copying the manuscript when a tribal elder arrived and requested he stop and requested the prayer stick be returned. Custer declined even when he was told he could copy the full manuscript if he returned the prayer stick. The prayer stick and transcript we have today are the results of this fraught exchange and speak to what motivates broader attempts to reclaim indigenous translations from these early ethnographic exchanges.
1: Again, you know, when you asked your first question, well, how did you find this? Well, it's kind of hiding in plain sight, like most of the stuff I work with. But if you never looked at in what I consider the proper way, uh, which is as a living text that can be retranslated by Potawatomi and Kickapoo people today, and kind of reconsidered in our in our contemporary times. And that's been going on a lot in the last ten years in different Native communities, going back and retranslating stuff that non-Indian ethnographers transcribed and perhaps transcribed poorly or misunderstood. In, in the past.
0: As Phil describes, the translation of these pieces and their recontextualization as living texts reflects the larger goals of his scholarship. All, all
1: of my research in the last 10 years has been about the way that different Native American communities in the 19th century had made all kinds of different efforts to preserve their cultures. Um, and I, because I'm a literary language person, focusing on the way they use language, their own, and, and English, and books, and writing of different kinds. And so, for me, every one of the stories in this Kickapoo prayer stick is a, a really outstanding example of it. Every story along these lines is a story of perseverance and of, of, of a really, really strong will of a community. Uh, to maintain itself on its own terms, even in the midst of being forcibly taken from their homelands by federal troops and relocated into a very different landscape, in this case in Kansas.
0: This story, which Phil shares in Hidden Literacies and will expound on in a book project, offers a narrative of resistance.
1: And of the story that I tell partly in the anthology and in the book I'm working on now is the story of several generations of this congregation and how while other members of the community of the Potawatomi and Kickapoo who were relocated to this general area in Kansas did not do well. Uh, their farming was not very successful. They fell prey to unscrupulous land speculators to traders who sold them alcohol when they shouldn't have been. Um, the Kickapoo congregation and the Potawatomi members of the Kenneko Church, they prospered and they continued to worship on into the 20th century using the the original texts that were written in wood back in 1830. So to me, it's a it's a That they uh, use in their prayers, and they also have elements of traditional uh, Kickapoo ceremonial practices too. So it's just for me, it's a, it's the kind of story you don't or you used to not hear that much about Native people. That is, um, instead of extinction, it's survival, it's change, it's uh, in- innovation, uh, and all the stories in this one in particular that I've been collecting over the years have that element. Native people are very, very creative in the 19th century in the way they approach the colonial onslaught of the Europeans.
0: This story has resonance for Indigenous repatriation and language reclamation efforts today.
1: I have a blog called The Repatriation Files. uh, And on that blog, I kind of talk about events all around the world in which Indigenous people are fighting for land rights and, and, and things like that and I talk about the UN's Declaration of Indigenous Peoples' Rights. And in every story of contemporary Mexico and Latin America, um, there are stories just like this Kickapoo story. There are stories of people who innovate, who wish to maintain certain traditional values in the face of uh, modernization, globalization. And, And so it's kind of a story that is being retold in communities all over.
0: Phil's work is part of a larger movement to reclaim indigenous language from colonial destruction.
1: I would say it's just been in the last 10 years that native linguists, linguists who are members of the communities of the language they study, rather than outsiders, have begun to reclaim a lot of the texts that were collected in the 19th century and to look at them again for the purposes of language revitalization in their home communities because a lot of these languages are not being spoken as much as they should be. And so we have this huge body of texts in so many Native communities that are written down by outsiders that can be reinterpreted by contemporary Native people to revitalize their language, uses of words that you don't hear in everyday speech anymore that need to be returned to the language so that people can build the language up again in, in its fullest kind of uses. And so there's a good example uh, of a linguist, and I, I don't remember his name right now, went back and retranslated the opening preface to the Black Hawk autobiography written in 1833, you know, transcription of the warrior Black Hawk's uh, description of, of the Black Hawk War. And this linguist retranslated that, uh, which was written in syllabic uh, sock of the tribal. revision and, and retranslation is just really illuminating in how Black Hawk sounds and how um, he was trying to frame his autobiography as a, a traditional uh, sock and fox um, narrative. In other words, a, a literary genre that was in his community as an oral form, he was careful to try to frame the book that he knew they were writing from the transcript as something that was still his and still his
0: community. This shift to center translation and preservation work around tribal communities reflects changing practices in archives and special collections.
1: Out at Berkeley, uh, they have a great language archive on wax cylinders that they were able through new uh, digital technologies to recover, and uh, they're much more listenable now. Also at the American Philosophical Society, they've done so. And the important thing to mention is that all of these projects are being done in cooperation with the Native communities from which the original recordings were taken. So there is a bit of ethical responsibility uh, that's being added back into the process as well.
0: Phil's own approach to this work reflects this turn towards foregrounding Native American cultural sovereignty, with Indigenous translation and archival policies leading the way.
1: And that's why I'm working with Mike Zimmerman who is a former Tribal uh, Historic Preservation Officer for the, uh, the Potawatomi of Michigan. And he's gonna help me with the translation. He teaches the language, and uh, he, he and I are gonna collaborate on that translation for the anthology, so that it'll be respectful of uh, contemporary Potawatomi's understanding of what's going on in the text, rather than my you know, imposition on, on what, what we're seeing there.
0: Listeners interested in exploring Phil's work can check out his 1999 book, By Nature and by Custom Cursed, Transatlantic Civil Discourse and New England Cultural Production, 1620-1660, 2008's The Impossible Land, Story and Place in California's Imperial Valley, or his 2010 book, Removable Type, Histories of the Book in Indian Country, 1663-1880. Hidden Literacies is a production of Trinity College, edited by Hilary Wiss and Christopher Hager, with support from the English Department and Information Services, with technical support by Mary Mahoney, Joelle Thomas, and Kate Kennedy. This podcast was produced by me, Mary Mahoney, with the support and permission of the contributors to Hidden Literacies. For more information on Hidden Literacies and to explore the texts and commentaries described here, please visit www.hiddenliteracies.org.